Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But before you can truly learn from the tales of our past, you must first understand them. And you're in luck because you found the one and only show that dives deep into the historical figures of our past and how key events have shaped the world that we live in today. You're tuned to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Right here on WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. With your host of today's show, Connor Bolanos. Welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Last week, if you tuned in, you know that we were talking about Joseph Bonaparte, the older brother of Napoleon Bonaparte, the famous first consul of France and the famous first emperor of France, who would go on to conquer almost the entirety of Europe and bring it under the French domination until his defeat at Waterloo in 1815. And if you know from last time, I talked about the brothers of Napoleon Bonaparte, specifically Joseph Bonaparte. But I also, mainly as a in order to talk about people who I think are really overshadowed in the grand scheme of things. So you, when you have such tall and powerful figures, famous figures, such as Napoleon Bonaparte, you know, he tends to be the center of attention, the center of focus. He tends to be what people know the most. And as a result, people like Joseph Bonaparte and his brother Louis Bonaparte and Jerome Bonaparte, who were all very important figures in Napoleon's empire, all pretty much get pushed to the side. And that's why yes, last time we talked about Jerome Joseph Bonaparte, sorry. And today we're going to be talking about Louis Bonaparte and Jerome Bonaparte, the two younger brothers of Napoleon Bonaparte who would rule the Kingdom of Westphalia and also the Kingdom of Holland. So let's just jump right into it, talking about Louis Bonaparte, who is younger than Napoleon, but he is older than Jerome Bonaparte, who will be the second conversation of today once we get done talking about Louis Bonaparte. So Louis, much like the entirety of the Bonaparte family, was born to Carlo Bonaparte, on the 2nd of September, 1778. Very similar to Napoleon's upbringing, he had a very militaristic upbringing, where he attended a military academy, ended up joining the army in France. Louis, Louis Bonaparte's early army career was actually spent, for the most part, serving Napoleon, serving alongside his brother Napoleon in Egypt. And thanks to Napoleon, Louis was given a commission within the French military, where he was promoted to lieutenant in the 4th Artillery Regiment. From there, where he was made to... The, made the aide-de-camp on Napoleon's staff, and Napoleon, during his Italian campaign, would go on to recommend Louis to General Carnot, and he would be subsequently made a captain. He later became a general by the age of 25, although he felt himself, actually, that he had risen a little too quickly in that short of a time span. But this was kind of a very n common thing during the Revolution, during these early stages of the war. With the, you know, when the Revolution came, you had those divisions between the Royalists. You had the Reign of Terror. And there were a lot of military officials at the time, especially higher-ranking military officials, who were pro-Bourbon. As a result, were either executed, imprisoned, or fled into exile which left the French army with not much in the way of a high command. So you saw these rapid ascensions of people from being formerly captains, lieutenants, sergeants, all the way up to general in what was a very short time span. So a lot of people felt that like this duty of military command was thrust onto them so suddenly. And, and it was a sudden thrust, but in, re in respect to how promotions at the time were happening within France, it wasn't anything extremely out of the ordinary. Although in Louis's case, I'm, I'm certain that it was much quicker than other generals, especially given his um, relation to Napoleon and the influence that he had at the time. 
After his brief time as a general, he was eventually called back to France once his service ended after the First Wars. And upon Louis's return to France, he was directly involved in Napoleon's plot to overthrow the Directory and install himself as Emperor of the French. After Napoleon became First Consul, he arranged for a marriage between Louis and Hortense de Brunaus, the daughter of Empress Josephine, and hence Napoleon's stepdaughter. Hortense, who was opposed to the marriage at first, was eventually persuaded by her mother to marry Louis for the sake of the family, and she did so, which kind of led to some marital strains between the two of them over the course of their marriage. Louis also during this time, something that for the most part kind of was underplayed by the Bonapartes, kind of was tried to ignore it, and something that ended up influencing his decision-making to a degree, was that he suffered from periods of what people, you know, deemed as a mental what, what was a mental illness. Um, it was unknown as to exactly what it was specifically, given at this time, you know, psycho psychology wasn't necessarily the biggest field in existence, but many believe that it was, for the most part, it was depression mixed in with mental instability, which would tend to plague Louis all the way up till his death. Now is when Louis would come to become King of Holland. So when Napoleon underwent his campaigns to conquer Europe, he eventually invaded what was the United Provinces of the Netherlands. Or for the sake of things, I'll just call it the Netherlands from here on out. The Netherlands at the time, you know, the Batavian Republic after Napoleon had originally conquered it, was in the eyes of Napoleon too independent for his liking. So in 1806, on the 5th of June, Napoleon replaced it with the Kingdom of Holland, upon which he put Louis Bonaparte at the head of the kingdom. As we've seen with Joseph Bonaparte, Louis really saw a way of securing his border the border countries of his of France such that were outside his, of his ability to govern. Um, note that at the time Belgium was directly annexed into France, but 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 Regions such as Holland, the Kingdom of Holland, were deemed too far and too, deemed to be too much of a strain on France's administrative system, so they were usually made in the client states upon which relatives would be um, installed through which they were governed. We saw that with Naples, where, jo where Joseph originally was, and with Spain, where Joseph eventually became king. Now, as uh, you know, the King of Holland, Louis was not really expected to be much more than pretty much a French puppet of France. Um, however, Louis had his own mind, and for the most part, tried to be a responsible and independent ruler. In an effort to endear himself to his adopted country, he tried to actually learn the Dutch language, and he called himself Lodzvik, and declared himself Dutch rather than French, something which caused some strain between Napoleon and Louis. Allegedly, his Dutch was actually initially so poor that he, was, that he told people he was the rabbit of Holland rather than the king of Holland. However, his sincere effort to learn Dutch act earned him actually a great deal of respect for many of the subjects and the nobles that he ruled over. So while, you know, it kind of seems kind of foolish at first and it put on some strain, it really did make a stride towards earning the respect of the people he was governing. Having declared himself Dutch, Louis tried to make his court also relatively Dutch instead of French like many of his brothers did. He forced his court and ministers who were all mainly French uh, ministers provided by Napoleon, to speak only Dutch and renounce all of their French citizenships. However, this was also too much for his wife, who I mentioned was already in a somewhat strained marriage, and she ended up refusing the request. And she only came to Holland really reluctantly and deliberately tried to avoid Louis as much as possible. She often went back to France to spend time with her mother because she just couldn't bear to be around him and couldn't bear to be, you know, Dutch in what, uh, Louis was really making a Dutch kingdom rather than a French kingdom like Napoleon intended. For anyone just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.
the show where we dive deep into the historical figures of our past to better understand our present. For all of you tuning, just tuning in, welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. This week we're going to be talking about Louis and Jerome Bonaparte. First, we're starting with Louis Bonaparte. We just got done talking about his early life, his struggles with his marriage, and also his efforts to unfrankify the the new kingdom of Holland, if you want to call it that, although it was already Dutch. So basically just his efforts to thwart Napoleon's plan to turn the kingdom of Holland into an extension of France itself. So outside of these efforts to become Dutch and to seem Dutch and really endear himself to the people, Louis was also known for his um, inability to decide upon a capital for the kingdom of Holland. And he ended up changing the capital over a dozen times between Amsterdam, The Hague, Utrecht. And at one point he visited even a wealth Dutch, Dutch merchant and he ended up liking the house so much he evicted the resident took up residence there, and then about a week or two later, moved out again to switch capitals. And at one point, the European diplomatic corps that was following him went so far to issue a plea to him to stay still because they simply couldn't keep up where he was going. All these letters were coming in and out. They'd end up in Amsterdam, but actually, uh, Louis was over in Utrecht running the government. So he was pretty much impossible to catch up to him with actual diplomatic missives, updates, letters, and so on and so forth. And this was eventually attributed, actually, to uh, Louis' um, alleged lunacy. They thought that this is so ridiculous. The man changed over a dozen times. He has to be insane. Is it a result of his insanity? Who actually knows? But it is certainly one of the more notable and somewhat funny features of his reign. Outside of this, of course, during the time of his reign, he gave birth to three sons, one of whom would eventually go on to be the to restore the Second French Empire, First, as his president and eventually its emperor, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, better known as Napoleon III. And this was also a further complication upon their marriage. At one point, um, his wife wanted the children sent back to France where they could receive an education. Louis was a bit hesitant to do so. And, um, you know, eventually they were called back because Napoleon, the, you know, brother, Napoleon Bonaparte of France, um, called the children to him because he kind of was upset with Louis's whole kind of self self rule without French oversight, his efforts towards independence. So he brought the kids to his court as kind of an effort to keep his brother in line. And Louis tried for almost much of his reign to really bring them back, but he was never really able to successfully do so. Two tragedies would also occur within uh, the Kingdom of Holland during this time that would actually earn Louis the title of Louis the Good from his citizens. In um, 1807, a cargo ship exploded loaded with gunpowder in the heart of the city of Leiden in 1807, and a major flood in Holland in 1809 saw the deaths of a good amount of people. And Louis personally led these relief efforts, which led to the title of Louis the Good. And when Napoleon heard about this title of Napoleon the Good, he actually responded by saying, quote, Brother, when they say of some king or other that he is good, it means that he has failed in his rule. End quote. So as you can see, Napoleon wasn't uh, too much of a fan of how Louis was exactly running the Kingdom of Holland. Um, unfortunately for Louis, though, his reign as King of Holland would be relatively short-lived due to what was considered mainly two factors. The first was that Napoleon wanted to reduce the value of French loans from Dutch investors by about two-thirds, which would have been a serious economic blow to the Netherlands. The second factor was one that became the pretext for Napoleon's demand of Louis's eventual abdication. As Napoleon was preparing an army for his invasion of Russia, he wanted troops from the entire region under his control, including the Kingdom of Holland. 
Louis, confronted by his brother's demand for men, refused outright. Napoleon then accused Louis of putting Dutch interests above those of France and removed pretty much the entirety of French forces in Holland for the coming war in the East, leaving only around 9,000 garrison soldiers in the country. However, unfortunately for Louis, the English took advantage of this, this, landing an army of 40,000 men in 1809 in an attempt to capture Antwerp and Flushing. With Louis unable to defend his realm, France had to deploy around 80,000 militiamen, commanded by Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, who eventually would repel the invasion. Napoleon, as a result of Louis' failure to repel the English, but also because of its resistance to bankrupting and destroying the entirety of the Dutch state for the sake of the French, um, suggested that he abdicate, citing his inability to protect, although it was really for those other reasons we mentioned earlier. Louis actually refused and declared the occupation of the kingdom by the French as unlawful. But on the 1st of July, 1810, Louis abdicated in favor of his second son, Napoleon Bonaparte where he fled from Harlem on the, tw- on the 2nd or 3rd of July, where he would settle in Austria. Now in exile in Austria, Louis really didn't do too much. He didn't outright speak out against his brother Napoleon. For the most part, he led a relatively calm life, where he sat writing poetry and some memoirs and other novels. Um, and he pretty much traveled Europe during this most part. At one point, he visited uh, William of the Netherlands, and also William in 1840, and... You know, he did so actually under a false name, as the king at the time, uh, William I, actually denied it. And some people who, upon finding out that he was the king traveling under a false guise, um, cr- gathered outside the window of his hotel, uh, cheering his name. And they said he was quite moved uh, by the demonstration of affection from his former subjects, that he attempted to stay in Holland, but was never really ultimately able to. After that, after the death of Joseph Bonaparte in 1844, Louis came to be seen by the Bonapartists within France as the rightful emperor, although Louis took pretty much no action to advance his claim within France. And it would only be his son, Napoleon III, who would actually attempt to restore the Bonapartes to France. Still in exile in the, ta- in the city of Livorno in Tuscany, Italy, on the 25th of July, 1846, Louis Bonaparte would unfortunately pass away, leaving, leaving a somewhat controversial legacy as Louis the Good, and to many Dutch people, a good king, but to his brother, Napoleon, the emperor of the French, he failed to rule in its entirety. If you're not reading and learning history, then you're doomed to repeat it. For all of you just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos. For all of you just tuning in, welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We just got done talking about Louis Bonaparte, the King of Holland, and now we're going to jump into the last and youngest Bonaparte brother, Jerome. Jerome Bonaparte, like all the Bonapartes that I've been talking about so far, was born to Carlo Bonaparte on the 15th of November, 1784, in Corsica. Unlike his older brothers, though, he didn't go on to receive an army education. He studied at the Catholic College of Julie and the Lay College at the, at the Irish College in Paris before going on to serve in the French Navy, before then he actually went on to, to live in the United States, where he would marry at the age of 19 Elizabeth Patterson, the 18-year-old daughter of a prosperous shipowner and merchant, William Patterson in Baltimore. And now, to Napoleon, who was at the time Emperor of the French, uh, marrying what was deemed a commoner and not of royal blood was a major issue. And after Pope Pius VII in Rome refused to annul the marriage, 
He annulled the marriage himself by French imperial decree on the 11th of March, 1805, as a matter of state. At the time, Jerome was on his way to Europe with Elizabeth, who was at the time pregnant, where they would land in neutral Portugal, and upon hearing about this imperial decree, Jerome set off to persuade his brother to recognize the marriage. Elizabeth had tried to land in Amsterdam at the time, hoping to enter France so her baby would be born on French soil, giving the child French citizenship, but the emperor barred the ship from entering the harbor entirely, where Elizabeth was then forced to go on to England, where the child Jerome Napoleon Bonaparte was born. After the child was born, the emperor ended up following through with the decree of divorce with the Roman Catholic Church eventually assenting to the annulment and eventually French state proceedings were carried on without Jerome's consent. Jerome would eventually, though, submit to the emperor's demands, and Elizabeth was forced to return to America with her son, where she was later declared divorced from Jerome by special decree and act of the Maryland General Assembly in 1815. Now back in uh, France, Napoleon made his brother King of Westphalia, a realm which lived from 1807 to 1813, created by Napoleon from several states and principalities in northwestern Germany. After becoming the king of Westphalia and moving to Westphalia, Jerome was once again married, this time arranged and with the approval of his older brother Napoleon, to Princess Katerina of Württemberg, the daughter of Frederick I, king of Württemberg. A marriage to a German princess by Napoleon was intended to boost the dynastic standing of the young French king in what was at this time a very German state in the very German confederation of the Rhine. When Jerome and Katharina arrived in Castle, they found the palaces in a completely plundered state. As such, they ordered, they placed orders for an array of stately furniture, expensive silverware with leading Parisian manufacturers. Local artisans oriented themselves to many of these French models, and the, the capital of Castle really began to take on these very French cultures and traditions. In addition to these very lavish decorations, something that would go on to put a lot of financial strain on the Kingdom of Westphalia, Jerome commissioned a number of what can really only be considered grandiose state portraits of himself and his wife, paintings which celebrated military exploits and cost thousands of francs as he hired pretty much the very best painters from France to make these decorations, which really isolated himself from, you know, the what you could say the common folk of Westphalia, unlike was the issue with Louis Bonaparte and led to a lot of expenses. As a model state, though, you know, ruled by Jerome, the Kingdom of Westphalia was expected by Napoleon to serve as an example for all the other German states under Napoleon's rule in the Confederation of the Rhine. It received the first constitution and parliament to be founded on German soil, decades before other parliaments such as Frankfurt in 1848, and Jerome imported the empire style from Paris, bestowing the state with a new modern representative appearance, creating a new sort of, you know, empire, which was kind of new. The Napoleonic Empire, to make it clear, is very different from what used to be styled as empire, like the Austrian Empire or the Russian Empire or the British Empire. It was a lot more centralized and with various numerous administrative bureaucratic reforms that would take a far more time to get into than I have. But just to make it very clear, importing empire is, in this case, a very is a the probably the best way to describe it because it is a very new model of empire compared to what already has existed but with these new furnishings this importation of empire these new artistic product projects castle the capital of the kingdom of westphalia saw an enormous cultural upturn but 
These expensive habits earned him the contempt of Napoleon, as Napoleon's own court expenses came to rival those of Jerome, and Jerome was in a subsequently small, not subsequently, sorry, a much smaller and less important state than France. So when you have such a small state racking up the same court revenue expenses as the French Empire, there's a bit of an issue going on there, which Napoleon wasn't too happy about. And kind of to give him away from these more lavish expenses, Jerome was given command of a poor in the Grand Armée during the Russian campaign in 1812, where he would march on Minsk. Insisting on traveling in state, Napoleon eventually reprimanded Jerome, ordering him to leave his court and the luxurious trappings behind that he tried to take with him on the campaign itself. After the Battle of Mir in 1812, Jerome would occupy Mir Castle. In peak at Napoleon's order, Jerome returned with his entire court and train back to Westphalia to the comfort said he came to know. After the defeat in Russia in the following winter, Jerome would petition Napoleon to allow his wife to go to Paris, fearing the advance of the Allied armies. On the second attempt at this, Napoleon would end up granting permission. Jerome briefly rejoined the army in 1813 when his kingdom was encircled, but however, eventually, Allied forces ended up capturing Castle, upon which his kingdom was dissolved and Jerome was forced into exile. Jerome would then go on to join Napoleon during his Hundred Days, commanding the 6th Division. However, considering that this was a largely a failure by Napoleon, he would end up going back into exile. After this second exile, his father-in-law, Frederick I of Württemberg, gave him the title of Prince of Montfort, where he would live um, until eventually, though, he made his way mainly around Europe back to the United States, but he would eventually return to Italy, upon which he would die in 1860 after divorcing his second wife and remarrying a third wife in Italy. But he would die in 1860 on the 24th of June, where he would be buried afterwards in France at Les Invalides. Thus ends the reign of both Jerome Bonaparte and Louis Bonaparte. For the most part, as I mentioned earlier, these are often overlooked figures within history, especially when you have a figure as magnanimous as Napoleon Bonaparte himself. But yet, these are important figures, as Napoleon used his relatives to govern these border states, who he hoped would be loyal, but... As, as things show, especially Joseph disappointed Napoleon in Spain. Louis ignored Napoleon for the sake of Holland, and Jerome racked up expenses and pretty much refused Napoleon. So in a way, you can kind of see how, in, in a way, how Napoleon's empire had internal stability, and this relationship between brothers really shows that. But at the end of the day, I think it's really important that you know at least of these people, because they have made a mark on history to a degree. And although certainly not as great as that of Napoleon Bonaparte, they certainly have a place, to, a piece to play in the greater story of the first French Empire and Napoleon Bonaparte as a whole. Thank you for joining for this week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Tune in next week as we discover another historical figure from our past. And that's all the time we have left today for you history buffs. There's many more historical figures from our past to discuss, so be sure to join us same time, same place, next week for a new edition of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.